Welcome back to Carrying Wayward, a supernatural podcast for fans who aren't ready to let go and newcomers to the series who are ready to jump in. I'm Drew Shulman. And I'm Marie Vigourou. In this episode, we're diving into Supernatural Season 2, Episode 1, In My Time of Dying. Let's get this show back on the road. We're back. We're back, we babies. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I know. I'm trying to like do that thing where it's like, let's remember that this is a show and we're professional and there's like, how long has it been for the listeners since they last heard us? We haven't recorded together since the live show. It feels like a really long time ago. And I don't know, for some reason, it also feels like a lot has happened since. I'm very happy to be back. I'm happy that our listeners are still here listening to us. And I am just looking for all the joy I can before we discuss the episode because it crushed me emotionally. But we'll get to that shortly. How about we get started with your very famous two minute recap? (laughs) I'm ready. Count me in. All right, three, two, one, go. We pick up on the horrible car accident from the end of season one. The demon comes over. Sam's all like, I have one last bullet. Do you really want to challenge me? Demon's like, "Mm, no. And they get rescued. We have Sam is injured, but okay. John is pretty beat up, but doing okay. Dean, coma, he's out. This doesn't look good. Dean then wakes up. And starts looking around for things, only to realize that he is a spirit, and no one can see or hear him. And he's trying to figure out what this means, and he gets to sort of watch this battle between Sam and his father over how to deal with things, kind of, and not being able to interrupt, even though he wants to. And then he does meet another spirit, who it turns out isn't a spirit, but the Grim Reaper, or a Reaper. And then we find out that John is secretly making a deal with the devil at the crossroads, and or a boiler room... And is going to give up the cult and something else, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, what could it be, to get the yellow-eyed demon to find a way to stop death and save Dean. And then John drops dead at the end of the episode. Uh, Once again, I I kind of feel there's a trend. The shorter my recap, the more heartbreaking and emotion we have to handle. It's a very nuanced episode, and that's something that I saw this time around when we watched it. So before we get into that, do you mind if we go into the long game right away? Yes, of course. So like you said, we start, we meet Tessa. Our second Reaper. Our second Reaper. She is the first Reaper with a name, and she's also the first Reaper who can take human form. So we can see that the lore is a little bit different this time around. So we'll be able to talk about that in critical time. So I'm just going to point out a couple of things for the people who have seen a little bit further. So there's these two lines that are absolutely heartbreaking. If you know anything about the show and what happens in later seasons, Tessa says, whatever's going to happen is going to happen. It's out of my control. It's just fate. And Dean replies, that's crap. You always have a choice. You kind of You can either roll over and die, or you keep fighting no matter what. So we're starting to see that push and pull between free will and fate. Which is interesting, because even without being given the context of how it will play a bigger role later on, I can piece together some things based on what I do know. But Mm -hmm. even just in Dean as a character, it's a great element to him that there is always a choice, there's always a fight, there's never just rolling over and giving up. 
Absolutely. And see, this is really interesting. And we'll talk about that a bit more, but this really contrasts with the way that he was acting in faith. Then we are going to remember these particular sentences that the yellow-eyed demon has said. So he's mentioned that Dean is not much of a threat. So we're going to keep that in the back of our minds. And he says to John about Sam, of course, you know the truth. Yeah, that was my first note for this episode was John be lying. John be full of lies. Why you lie like that? And then I just really felt bad for like, you know, Dean's not much of a threat. Like, ow. Yeah. So in the first few seasons, like we're going to see this pattern of people and creatures like constantly underestimating Dean. And this is one of the first times that we're seeing it happen. And it's it's just smack in your face. I'll be curious to see where it goes because it does kind of follow again another very video gamey trope of people with powers who are special and the one person who kind of isn't who's just the normal bystander and how they can compete with these superheroes. It, it's something we see in a lot of like comic books or video games. So I'm intrigued to see how they continue this trend further down the road. Let's keep an eye on that as well through this mm-hmm. season. Another thing that Dean says that we really need to keep in mind is you can't kill death. Why do I feel like we're going to prove this wrong eventually? <laughs> well, <laughs> probably because I'm mentioning it in the long game, but I don't know. Good point. Like, I'll be honest, like, I like reading that line now, I was about to ask you, like, does that imply that Tessa was killed in this scenario? We don't really get any proof of that. She's just stopped. I don't want to give too much away for you. Ooh. We also see our very first demon deal. So that's really exciting. We mm-hmm. got to see it happen. And finally, we have the doctor who says to Dean, you got some kind of angel watching over you. Oh, I clock that line. Do not worry. I mean, of course. <laughs> who hasn't clocked that line? It was amazing. It was perfect. But we've known that since faith. We've known that since faith that there are angels watching over Dean, or at least mm-hmm. one. So with the long game all uh, tidied up with a little bow on top, shall we move into story time so we can discuss some very interesting story beats in this episode? So something that we can do here is to try to look at this episode with hindsight. So meaning to really look back at the episode, knowing that John planned to make the demon deal all along, knowing that Dean survives, and basically knowing that what Sam is going to feel at the end. And I would also like for us to pay particular attention to who is lying and who is telling the truth. I noticed a lot of people lying and a lot of people telling the truth in various circumstances. I just thought that it was interesting and that there might be something there. I mean, right away with John, like, there are some lies. They do tend to kind of fall in that same little realm of they're white lies. They're there just to protect ultimately Sam, which I think says a lot about the end of this episode, which I don't want to jump to too quickly. There's something weird about the way John handles everything this episode. And I'm curious if... Not that would he do it differently if it was Sam or Dean flipped, but how would he talk to Dean in the same scenario versus Sam? That's actually really interesting. Let's try to keep that lens because I I didn't want to identify a single theme for this episode. I figured that like, let's, let's talk about it a bit more organically and see what comes up. All right, so let's start with Dean. Just make a like a general comment about Dean. I thought that this episode contrasted with Faith so much because in Faith, he was like, you know, I'm going to die, Sammy, like, let's just, I just want to live out my last few weeks calmly, like, the way that I want to, like, just let me die. 
And here, like, he does not want to die. He's like, go find a hoodoo priest who can lay some mojo on me. I'll be fine. <laughs> like, he is just fighting as hard as he can. And even the doctor says, you know, he's fighting really hard, but we don't quite know what's going to happen. So two things. One, I love that line and the fact that Sam literally repeats it. There's the part of me that's like, oh, it's a cute joke. They're brothers. But then there's the part of me that I think this leans into their psychic connection, or at least Sam's latent psychic abilities that he, you know, like absorbed that information from Dean's spirit and was able to regurgitate it without realizing it the same way he kind of heard Dean when he was crashing. That's true. Yeah. So like, yes, it's a cute joke, but looking back now, I almost kind of think it might be a sign there's more to this. And I'm just, I'm curious about that. Like, do you think I'm reading too much into this or are we going to learn more about Sam's powers and think this could be a foreshadowing? So again, looking at this with from where I stand and not wanting to break the imagination <laughs> of this, I think that it was more to show how linked they are rather than how powerful a psychic Sam is. But I can also see it interpreted the other way around. So my personal interpretation is that it was to show their, their bond of brotherhood, but I would be totally okay if somebody said, no, like this is to show how psychic Sam is. I'd be like, oh, okay, cool. That's fine. That works. Yeah, I think I, I think I prefer the brotherhood angle. I really just like the idea that it's like they, they are so like-minded in some ways that those kind of jokes come to them naturally. But to your to the actual point you brought up, though, is it is a very different direction for Dean. But also Dean has been through so much since Faith. And I feel like now he has seen why he is so needed that him not being there would be such a dangerous combination for John and Sam that he needs to get back up or they are going to fall real fast. Well, is it that he feels... So, yeah, for sure, 100%. Like, I, I, I get that. I see it. I see you, like, 100%. But I'm also wondering now if it's not that he just likes his life better now that his dad and his brother are a part of it. It's easier to hang on to life when you like your life and when you're happy in it than when you're not. And so mm -hmm. I think that Dean was just happy to have his family back together. So let's move on to that scene with John and Sam, where John tells Sam that he needs, you know, some stuff, some ingredients for a protection spell. And clearly, you know, we find out that he's lying. So it makes you wonder, like, what else is he lying about? Because we know that he's trying and, and you you clocked that earlier you said you know he's protecting sam from what he's about to do i think that he's lying to protect sam's feelings and it's funny because i'd forgotten about that shot when sam walks out of john's room and the camera pans out from john and then focuses on dean in the corner of the room it was like just mwah, wow mm -hmm. perfect what a perfect moment to show that like there was more to what john was saying to show that basically he was lying yeah and i think it just it, it acts like a nice accent to the existing lies we've learned throughout the episode that he clearly knows more about sam's abilities and what the demons want with him exactly Mm -hmm. Like, I don't think that's particularly news to us. I, I mean, I think we kind of get the gist of it in the finale. But to know that John knows more, it just raises questions about how much he knows about the yellow white demon that he wasn't telling them. You know, it's just it's just awful because the Winchesters, like, they never they never tell each other the truth. <laughs> I mean, just ah. to break to break for a second, that is the trope of most television if. People just spoke to each other. You'd resolve 90% of the show's problems. 
every show ever. Fight me on this one. Oh my god, that's so true. Okay. Again, if we continue chronologically in, um, in this one, one thing that I thought was really interesting is that they make this parallel between the Impala and Dean. And when Sam goes to pick up the car and Bobby's there and he's like, listen, kid, like this, this car is not worth anything. Like it's not even worth the tow. Like, why do you want the car back? <laughs> and then Sam gets just like so emotional about it because he knows that his brother is like dying on a ventilator. And he goes like, there, even if there's just one good part, we can't just give up, you know? And, and, and you can see that Bobby is like, okay, like I see what's going on. You got it. I got you. Like I'll tow the car. I will pay the money that it takes to get the car back to my garage and we'll, we'll fix it up. And it's just so soft, like so parent-like. And especially when you contrast it with the moment that Sam had with John earlier, and, and I want us to notice that Bobby actually told the truth to Sam about the spell. That's what I wanted to get to, was it's literally showing us two different parental figures to Sam. One lying to him, albeit to protect him. And the other, you could see that he wanted to keep the lie up because he wanted to protect him. But he also goes, I can't do that to you. I have to be honest because I respect you. Well, there you go. And that's sort of what I want us to keep in mind and to kind of scratch at here. Like, what are the pros and cons of each approach? Uh, and I mean, we don't need to like really break it down here now, but let's just keep that in mind because, you know, like you said, he tells them the truth about the car and about the spell. Like he tells him like the car is not mm -hmm. worth crap right now. The spell is not for protection. But yet he still does what Sam needs from him. He gets him the ingredients and he tows the car. So you just have these two approaches where when you tend to compare them, to me anyway, John's approach comes off as manipulative. Oh, 100%. I don't know. I feel like this is one of those, I'm going to bring it up. I'm going to say the words and then it's going to launch you and I into a very long dialogue. So it's, I, I want to be safe. I think it's the right time to do it. How do you think things would have gone if John was honest. If John said, listen, like, I don't care what you say, but I'm just going to say it. I'm going to summon the demon. I'm going to make a deal with him. I'm going to give up my life and I'm going to save Dean. Like, Ooh. what What would have Sam, like, Sam would have tried to stop him. Sam would have fought him. Ultimately, they may have found something. I, I don't think Sam would let it happen. I mean, clearly, the idea of John dying is something Sam will not let happen. But I, I sort of want to stop you for a second here, like before we get any further. I don't think that John was intending to give up his life. True. That is true. I don't think that was part of the original idea. I think he wanted to give up the cult for Dean's life because he thought that the cult would be enough. But the demon sort of cornered him and said, well, no, I want more. You got to sweeten the pot. And I don't think that John, I think John was prepared to do it and he did it out of love for his son. But I don't think that that was the original goal. I think that John was really devastated about having to give up the cult. But I still feel like Sam would have been a hindrance. But you know what, though? But yes, I think that Sam would have. Well, would he have really fought him on this? You think? That's what bothers me is I feel like even if he wouldn't, let's let's go altruistic here. Let's be rainbows and puppy dogs for a second. That John goes, hey. You're right. You caught me in a lie. Here's my plan. I'm going to trade the cult for Dean. And Sam goes, yeah, that's cool. I'm down. Why did John have to lie to him then? Why did John feel that he had to not tell Sam the truth? 
I think that John did not want Sam anywhere near that yellow-eyed demon. I think John may have been afraid that Sam was too intent on getting the demon back for what happened and would have tried to turn it into a trap or a trick or something. At the end of the day, I think it comes down to lack of trust in Sam. Because yeah, no matter if it's yes. your like your interpretation or mine, I think that we come down to an idea, a moment where we realize that John does not trust, or not that he necessarily doesn't trust him, but he doesn't trust him enough. So then maybe he's not protecting him. He's protecting something else, the status quo or, or, or the mission, like whatever, like he is, he doesn't trust Sam enough to do this. And so therefore, like, we can't really say that John was not telling Sam to protect him. Ooh, I don't like this conclusion, but I guess it makes sense. (laughs) Like it feels icky, but it's the only thing that makes sense. Well, let's, let's move on to, to the, to the next point that I have in my notes, because I think that this Like, I don't know, it sort of ties into it in some ways. Because, you know, we were talking about John's original plan, which was to just give up the cult, right? And we have this scene where Dean just, like, yells at John, you know, like, I've done everything you asked me, uh, and you haven't called anybody, you know, like, I've done everything you wanted. And, it, you know, he's... Basically, this is Dean being afraid of dying and afraid that his dad has, like, forsaken him. And I... It's really, I keep seeing like the biblical moments in these early seasons on this rewatch. And this is just very like Jesus-like of him, you know? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know, Mark 15, 34 for context. This is when Jesus is being crucified and he's about to die and he feels completely abandoned. Now, of course, we've already made the parallel between what Dean thinks of John and God, and this seems pretty fitting. So we've talked about like in the later half of season one about how Dean is like slowly losing his faith in John. And we're really seeing that in that moment. Like Dean is not trusting his dad. He doesn't say, oh, I know you're going to find a way. I know my dad is going to find a way. I know dad's going to do this for me. He gets angry with John, you know, what kind of father are you? And so I just think that that is like such a, a page, like a, a, a milestone for Dean. He doesn't trust John to save his life. It's almost like this is the final nail in the coffin and he finally has now realized his father is just a man and not the best man. And this is the moment when Dean, I think, fully lets go of the faith that he's had in John up to this point. He has fully given up. Even just from that point on in the episode... Every time he is trying to do anything to reconnect with somebody, it's Sam. Literally, like, there's the fight where he knocks over the glass and makes the Swayze joke. But besides that, he has fully ignored John. He has, like, written him off, like, you're not going to bother trying. I'm going to go get Sam on my case, because Sam will try. Yeah, Sam will try. Which, again, leads a little bit again towards the end of the episode. I want to know what John said to Dean, and I feel like I'm not going to know for a while. <laughs> it's going to take some time before we get there, if season one is any indication of the pace at which we're going. So, yeah. <laughs> but ultimately, I'm wondering how whatever was said to him will affect the way Dean feels about John moving forward with the assumption that he is gone off this mortal coil. Well... I mean, there's there's going to be a lot of moments where we're going to get to talk about how Dean feels about John. So don't worry about that. We'll get to talk about it. 
So we've talked about why John was lying to Sam. We've given our own interpretations, but I'd like to talk about the effect of that on Sam. Because Sam is angry in this episode, right? We've talked about oh, this, yeah. we, right? It's, it's there. It's in your face all the time. Sam is really upset. So he thinks that John wants to summon the demon for revenge, which in hindsight is really quite painful, knowing what John is actually planning. And, and to be fair, I don't want to blame Sam for making that assumption because he's acting with the information that he has, which is John has hunted this demon for the last 25 plus years. John wants to summon the demon and John hasn't told him the full story. So Sam doesn't know what the plan is because again, John's not telling him what's going on. And this brings us back to Dead Man's Blood and we saw how, like, not letting the boys in on the plan backfired on him. So, like, Sam is dealing with these gaps in the narrative in front of him, and gaps invite interpretation. So he's filling those gaps by making his own interpretation of the situation as best as he can. But it also feels a bit childish. It just feels like he's not trying to understand, rather than asking the questions, figuring things out, doing the normal, let's get to the bottom of this. Obviously, he's distracted by everything going on with Dean. Like, he's not in the right headspace for this. It's understandable. But it really feels like when a child throws a tantrum at a parent for something the parent cannot control. Interesting. So when we talked about Dean getting upset at John, you didn't have those... Like, that didn't come to your mind. It came to your mind for Sam, though. Do you, do you know why? Again, Sam is just usually the more level-headed one, the one to do the research and find the answer and not jump to conclusions. Whereas Dean, I expected a bit more, but also this feels like Dean has been building up to this for so long. We've watched the faith fade from him episode by episode. So he reached a conclusion of you are sitting here doing nothing and telling Sam that you it might not be doable. I feel like you're giving up on me versus Sam going... You're not telling me everything. You're doing these weird, shady things. I'm going to now jump to conclusions and make assumptions and not confront you, which feels very not Sam to do. But he did it in Dead Man's Blood, too. Did he, where he was well, he, well, he was basically screaming at John and demanding answers. And we, had, and we had seen that John was starting to let them in on different plans, especially in like Salvation and Devil's Trap. So we thought that there was like some sort of turnaround there. There had been like a shift in the dynamic, but here we are like right back to that original dynamic. And I think that the whole quote unquote childish, because I don't, I don't think that this is childish, but I do think that there's an element of like quote unquote revertigo there where like in moments that are really emotionally charged, you tend to revert back to old dynamics with your with the people around you. And I think like this is it. This is partly what's happening with Sam. And and yeah, yeah, I, I really think so. And I, I I don't know, I feel I feel for Sam because when like Sam has spent his entire life being disappointed by his dad. And so to him it's like it's just another disappointment. Like you're just doing like you're back to your same old antics and you don't care about us i mean yeah you're right i think the 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 reversion the regression to the way things used to be is a better descriptor than a tantrum but also to your point of sam got mad at 
you know, John and demanded answers and eventually got them. Here he just goes, I'm going to make assumptions. I'm not going to ask you any questions. You know, even had Sam gone as far as to say, explain to me why you're planning to summon the demon, or at least had... John could turn around and lie and said, because I want to try to fight him one last time, I'm worried that he'll make a move on us while we're here in the hospital. Like, you're already in for a penny, in for a pound. You're already lying, just keep lying. Mm -hmm. But Sam doesn't even give him the opportunity to lie. Sam just puts lies in his own mouth and goes, that must be what's happening. I'm right, I'm Sam. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely also like a, an element of that, right? Like, I'm right, I'm Sam. I think that you've coined it really well here. <laughs> so, I, yeah, definitely. I, I, Our next t-shirt. Yeah, I'm right, I'm Sam. I love it, actually. Um, I guess, like, the thing is, like, John had already lied to him about it. So... Like you said, in for a penny, in for a pound. What what tells you that he's going to tell him the truth? So what's the harm in, in Sam assuming something or not, right? So mm. I, this is just a tough situation that's brought on by John lying about something. When he could have just told him the truth. But he didn't. He chose not to. And there we are. Here we are. Here we are, as per usual. well let's move on to that moment where you talked you know the Swayze moment (laughs) (laughs) where like Dean is really trying to mediate the fight between John and Sam and I just like this kind of gets again like we're segueing really nicely into this because like as always like John starts like pummeling on Sam and like this demon killed your mom and your girlfriend and like we know and it's really what's really upsetting about this moment is that if we're looking at it in hindsight, we know what John is planning to do. He's giving up the cult in order to save Dean's life. And yet he's arguing against that. He's like, this demon killed your mom and your girlfriend. You know, as if this was information that Sam could forget, one. Or as if this was even useful information right now. Like I said, I think that this shows you at this point that they're just taking out their fear and their frustration on each other by just yelling at the other one. And they're not communicating they're just assigning blame and you know john even acknowledges that at the at the end of the episode he's like you know half the time we're fighting i don't even know what we're fighting about we're just butting heads i think that that that's like what you said about you know them going back to that place of childhood i think i think you're right i'm torn part of me wants to suggest that John's choice of causing this fight the way it happened was to boil the emotions, was to keep Sam on guard and distant so that he can get away with his master plan that like we're, we're playing chess. He's a few moves ahead of Sam, which seems to kind of be John's MO. He, he seems to always be a few steps ahead of everybody in a, in a positive way, at least in this case albeit not for the best reasons. But then you're also right. Part of it is just like you said, he, the John says it. He doesn't know why they're fighting. They just do. And I mean, I think that that's truly the tragedy for these two characters is that they never really got to talk it out because, you know, near the end we have, I mean, we'll get to it, but John apologizes to Dean, but he never gets to apologize to Sam. I mean, we'll touch on that ending in a moment because we're getting pretty close to the end of the story, but um, yeah. And there's just like this little tiny thing also. So when they pull out the Ouija board and they play like, you know, Sam is asking Dean if the Reaper is after him. And you can see like the teeniest, tiniest hesitation on Dean's face before he answers. 
but he really chooses to tell him the truth like Bobby did earlier. And again, like I think that there is power to that. There's power to being truthful with the people you love. So there's one little detour that I'd like us to take here because Sam at one point, you know, well, no, because Sam goes, once he finds out that the Reaper is after Dean, he goes, oh, dad will know what to do. So even after all of their fighting, he still goes to his dad for knowledge, right? So dad will know what to do. I think you really might be onto something with the whole childish thing, actually, the more I think about it. Because this is a very childlike reaction. Like, let's go, let's go get dad for help. And we've talked about Sam as being the bringer of knowledge in season one. And this really does intensify in season two and onward. And I'm wondering if this, like, isn't Sam uh, trying to overcompensate? And here, here's what I mean. He's trying to be as knowledgeable as possible because he's seen what happens when you make decisions without the full picture. You know, you can see it as, like, Either he's trying to walk in his dad in his dad's footsteps because John was usually the bringer of knowledge when the three of them were together, or you can see it as like he's trying to avoid making the same mistakes as John by making sure that he is informed of what's happening. And again, like there's this parallel between knowledge and truth here because truth keeps you from access, like or untruth. Like telling telling lies keeps people from accessing knowledge in this particular episode. You know, either way, we start to see Sam like settling nicely into the role. Like I feel like so many notes in this episode were just like a one-off line that seems so like conversational and fluid and simple. But when you really take a step back and look at that line, you realize how deep the roots go. Yeah, so we've talked about this really briefly already, but like... When John and the yellow-eyed demon speak, we find out that the demon knows something about Sam and, quote-unquote, the other children, and that whatever that thing is, John has, again, been lying to Sam and Dean about it. Breadcrumbs have led us far enough to know there are other children with powers, as we met in Nightmares. We know there's something up in the fact that they've been tracking this demon who's been killing in the same way multiple times, and then... There's also the fact that even at the time I felt John's reaction to learning about Sam's visions felt weird at the time. That's true. And he said something like that happens, you call me. And then the conversation derailed to like, hey, buddy, we tried to call you for an entire season and you just never picked up the goddamn phone. (laughs) It's the kind of thing where it's like you expect a bigger reaction. You expect like. The next line after the, like, oh, we can never get a hold of you, and John being like, oh, I guess you're right. Okay, but seriously, you're having vision? Like, you go back to the point. But at the same time, we, until this point, never knew that John knew more. And this, again, is a great bit of storytelling in the fact that, of course he knew more. Of course he knows more. Yeah, and I think that's the thing that we have to remember. It's that what we seem to understand here is that John knows a lot more than he lets on, but he doesn't let people know that he knows. And I think that that's something that we really have to keep in mind when we're talking about John as a character. The next point that I want to get to before we talk about the end is that moment where John apologizes to Dean. You know, he tells this story about Dean, who as a kid would actually comfort John after his hunts and say, you know, it'll be okay. 
and John apologizes for that parentification. And when you look at the apology, objectively, it's really quite good because it names the problem and how it should have been fixed. You know, he says, you shouldn't have been saying it to me. I should have been saying it to you. I put too much on your shoulders. I made you grow up too fast. You took care of Sammy. You took care of me. It's interesting because until yesterday, I forgot about that moment entirely. I didn't remember that John had apologized to Dean about this. It's powerful. It really, and you're right, like reading through it now and talking about it again, it really is a complete apology. It isn't just a, I'm sorry this happened. It's very truly a textbook apology, which is thought out. This is not just a off the cusp type thing. This is something he's been thinking about. You know, he knows, you know, he wasn't, he, it wasn't a, Hey, you did this apologize. You're right. I make, I messed up. This is something he's been stewing over. Absolutely. I, I think, wow, that's sorry. That's not even something I had thought about that he would have been thinking or stewing about this. And, but it's so true because to be able to name those moments, to be able to say those words so specifically, he had to have been thinking about it. And this ties up quite nicely with the rest of the episode in that John knows when he's doing something wrong, but ultimately for the greater good. He knows lying to Sam is the wrong move. He knows it's going to just lead to pain and suffering on Sam's part in the small, but it's going to save Dean's life. And if he tells Sam the truth, it might not. Exactly. And to me, like, it's always impact over intent, right? Like, I don't really care that somebody didn't have or had good or bad intentions. Like, what really matters to me is the impact that those actions have and and that's why, like, I understand on an intellectual level that John wanted to do things for good, but all I keep seeing is the impact that he's had, and it's not a positive one. So it's hard. But are we ready for another episode of Let's Get Biblical? <laughs> So John dies at 10.41 a.m. Now, I am a Swifty, and so you cannot give me a number without me trying to make sense of it, right? So obviously, I looked up John 10.41 in the Bible, the King James Version, and here's where, and here's what it says. And many resorted unto him and said, John did no miracle, but all things that John spake of this man were true. Basically saying that, like, John wasn't a perfect guy, but he told the truth. Which is so interesting, considering what we've been discussing in this episode. So, John has basically been lying this entire episode, so where did he tell the truth? Oh, that is messed up. Maybe in what he said to Dean? That's the only place, and I think that just makes it even harder because I want to know what he said. I mean, this brings up my whole other point, which is a whole other can of worms, but why did he say nothing to Sam? Haha, <laughs> we will actually find out about that. Are we ready to finally move on to critical time? <laughs> I have so many little things to say in this epic critical time. But first, as we've said, 
who are the writer and director of this episode, Mary? All right, so let's get started. So this episode, unsurprisingly, was written by Eric Kripke. Um, so we can see that, you know, as the showrunner, he was writing the very important and key episodes in the seasons. And this one, you know, with John's death is absolutely one of those. So Mm -hmm. we are seeing Eric Kripke's little paws all over this episode. It was directed. (laughs) Yeah, sorry. It was directed by Kim Manners. And that's Honestly, probably why the cinematography is so good on this one. Like the visuals are just absolutely gorgeous. So we'll try something else too, not just the visuals, the audio. Really? So there is something I caught it right away. Okay. And I'm guessing you didn't then, and I tracked it throughout the entire episode. Dean's footsteps never make noise. He's he's barefoot. But even then, barefoot on like linoleum floors like that, and. Oh yeah, it's I true. actually go. think he might be wearing like something. I have to, we'd have to double check that what he's wearing. But regardless, like you're in a silent hallway, and unless you're tiptoeing, your feet are going to make some sound hitting the ground, mm. especially if you're running around. That's true. They are silent at all times. Interesting, showing that he is indeed a spirit. I love it. So even the first time he stands up before it's revealed, I immediately go, "Why are his feet silent?" <gasps> really, you I legitimately that up? That's so cool. instantly caught that. I'm like. Because, like, there's still sound, ambient sound in the scene, but his feet hitting the floor, zero sound wow. the whole oh way up God. the hallway. And then like, I had to check the entire episode, but that to me was just, like, directorially, mwah, chef's kiss. Wow. I, oh. Well, yeah, but there you go. Like, that's Kim Manners for you. Like, he, he really, he was a fantastic person for this stuff. And we'll see, like, as we see more... Um, episodes directed by him it'll you'll you'll notice instantly when it's a kim manners episode another little tiny thing that i want to mention is that in my time of dying is actually the title of a led zeppelin song and we're this is something that we're going to start seeing a lot especially in the first five seasons that they use a led zeppelin song like song titles as episode titles so it'll be fun to track can we talk about the continuity of the lore, the Reaper lore? So one thing to keep in mind, I think, is that later in Supernatural, or like at the very least, we're starting to get hints that Reapers are actually angels. So I don't know if you caught that or not, but that's that's something that becomes, I guess, like a thing where um, Reapers are actually angels. They're a specific kind of angel. They have a specific role, which is to reap, well, dead people, I guess, the souls of dead people. And it's interesting, but like the visual representation also of the Reapers has changed dramatically from Faith. Looking at it now with the context you've given me, yes, I could see the angel angle. For me, it almost felt like they were a neutral party. Like you have angels, you have demons, and then you have like Reapers that are their own level, which... yeah. I, I have read many a lore on the subject of Reapers, just personal passion of the occult and demonology. And I have seen a lot of stories that have gone both directions, or all three mm. directions, to be honest, of their demons, their angels that are guiding spirits, and they are a neutral party that is just there to act as a gatekeeper. Yeah. Very often, a lot of cultures do seem to see the Reaper as being Limbo's version of an angel or a demon. Mm-hmm. You know, angels, heaven, heck gets its de- I don't know why I censor myself. Heck, hell gets its demons. Hey, Chief, double, double hockey sticks. 
But limbo is this neutral zone that's allowed to have its own guides to basically move people between the afterlife and life even in some cases. Yeah, so I'm not sure if at this point we're supposed to be thinking or knowing that reapers are angels or not, but like... I let's just keep in mind that eventually we're going to find out that reapers are angels. So I think we should definitely keep that in mind. But it makes sense in the way that Tessa positions her role in the afterlife. It's not, I'm a reaper, I choose when you die. It's, you have died, I'm here to guide your spirit to an afterlife, and if you don't choose to come with me, you're stuck here as an evil spirit. Ooh, okay, so you... So you hit that I don't want to say nail but like you definitely hit that point that I wanted to bring up because we are finally we're told you know what happens when you don't go with the reaper so it's it's interesting because in faith we were told that the reaper comes to get you when you're still alive right and that you can run away from it but here we find out that if you run away from it you become a spirit an angry spirit and you stay stuck on earth and you're driven to 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 madness, I suppose. Yeah, so we find that out and that definitely stays and we get to explore that a little bit more in later seasons. Okay, I'm very intrigued because I do love that as a concept. I just love the idea of like choosing to go with it. I could still, I could still in my own mind and I'll even try to vocalize it here, finagle the idea of that the Reaper can still take somebody if the need comes and the fact that this Reaper was being controlled in faith is why it was killing people versus just taking their souls when it was their time. Kind of like a being like they have the power, but they're not supposed to, but they can if they need to type thing. Absolutely. Um, again, that's like, we'll see if next time we have Reapers, if it affects my built my current mindset lore I have for them. But can we also, while we're on the topic of Tessa, touch on one of the lines she brought up that I thought was really fun. Sure. Dean makes a joke about, you know, uh, not being, you know, ready for 72 virgins. I don't like prude chicks. Yeah. And Tessa responds, oh, you're cute. Like, you're clearly joking. And there's that part of me that goes, are you laughing at the fact that he doesn't like people who are prude or the fact that it would be just chicks? (laughs) Aw, Tessa. She already sized him up. Like, I didn't think it was worth bringing up in the lore of, like, reading Dina's by. I think that was just a cute little aside for us. Yeah, that's true. That is a cute little aside. But the I fact that, that that cute little line can be read both as a byline for Dean. Like, it doesn't mm-hmm. necessarily go towards the, like, a check mark in the, we believe Dina's by. Like, we know that. Yeah. And this line is just cute and does play with that a little yeah, bit. Yeah, exactly. And that's really interesting because, you know, sometimes, like... It's the little things also that are interesting to look at. Like we discussed mm-hmm. a little bit earlier about how these tiny little throwaway lines can, we can extract so much juice out of them. And I think that this is definitely one of them where it's funny because when she said that, I was like, hey, 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 like, <laughs> you know? like I sort of like chuckled to myself. Like, oh, I did the exact same thing. Don't worry. It's exactly why I brought it up. <laughs> and I knew you would have too. Like I knew yes. like. Hearing the line and going like, I'm going to bring this up in critical time and Mary's going to give me her chuckle. I know. it. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Oh, there's definitely some chuckles happening over here. And lastly, I know you've you've mentioned here the slow-mo shot of the coffee hitting the ground. Oh my God. I just like, I talked about how much I love the visuals in this episode. And I just think Mm -hmm. that 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 scene, that moment, like just that slow-mo shot is just like breathtaking because it really shows visually like what it feels like when your heart drops into your stomach. Like you just like, 
Like you feel Sam's anguish in that moment and you never, you don't see his face and you don't even need to see his face. Like it's just such beautiful visual storytelling. Like I just, I, oh, wow, wow. If only every Supernatural episode could be like that. <laughs> You're so right. The idea of just framing the shot where it's just John and Sam is purely auxiliary to the scene. Mm -hmm. he, he is there, he's reacting but the shot stays on John and doesn't move. Yeah. And the coffee cup hitting the ground in the slow-mo helps deliver what Sam is feeling. But then my inner filmmaker came out and ruined the scene for me. Why? Because you know they shot that multiple times to make sure the cup looked great while it was falling. Yeah, of course. And eventually they got a shot where it landed standing up and they had to use that shot because it was just too good. But that's only because they did it like 80 times. And it's one of those things where it's like, you know that if you were to drop a coffee cup, the odds of it landing standing up like that are like astronomically low. But it looked good. Yes. And it's so funny that you say that because that's also something I think every time I watch it, I'm like, of course they had to use that take, right? Because it was just so perfect. But still, I like, it takes so much to take me out of that moment that not even that like takes me out because it's just like, what a beautiful way of making the scene incredible incredibly intimate, but also so what I find that this scene does is that because we're not seeing Sam's face as he's calling for help, like it, it, we can see it, but it's like very blurry, like it's out of focus mm -hmm. because the focus is on the coffee cup. It allows us to really project our own emotions. And even me, who, as you know, has many problems with John, I was devastated for Sam in that yeah. moment. Like, you just want John to be okay, and you know that he's not going to be. You know that he's passed away. Like, you just know that. Mm -hmm. But you just, you're hoping that he's not. You're hoping that he's going to wake back up. And that and, and this is done with just, like, a shot of a coffee cup. Like, can you imagine the brilliance behind, I don't know, I, I have to stop, because I could be talking about this for an entire episode. Oh, it is a brilliant shot. It reads the emotional energy so well. And you're right, even as we sit here and we go over how much like, I feel like this episode alone, just our discussions, reminded me how bad John can be. At the end of the day, he's a human being. He is loved and he knows love and he's known so much passion that to see him go like this, especially when you make the connection real quickly, that this was clearly the sweetening the deal portion of the deal with the devil, that, oh. I know. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, there you go. So at this point, like, John is no longer part of the boy's life or like in his corporeal form. And I mean, I'll, I'll be very transparent for a second. I know he comes back. I have seen the episode where he shows up again. I can vaguely recall the scene because I think it's when they finally do kill the yellow-eyed demon in the season finale. And even knowing that, this still just pulls at your heartstrings. Of course, of course it does because they do such a good job at it, like, frankly. Mm -hmm. And I mean, of course, like, Jared Padalecki is a fantastic actor and so you're seeing the pain in his face. But like, and I, I don't want to take anything away from that, but we don't even need it. We feel mm -hmm. the scene already without his acting. And I just, I don't know. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we, we could do this all day and we shouldn't. But literally. Literally. Shall we move on to the crossroads? May I begin? Please. As weird as this sounds, something I complained about this episode is the thing I want more of. 
Tell me. As much as I complained about John's lying and how it wasn't really addressed in the episode as much as it should have been that Sam kind of just accepts it and doesn't try to question him, I think I would have liked, one, Sam questioning it more, but more so to have more of those lies because I really want to drive home what their relationship is is and find I feel like the time they do speak to each other the way they speak to each other does so much to build the relationship between Sam and John especially where we end up at the end of this episode I feel like they could have driven that home a lot more and by that side of things I think we could have I don't want to minimize our time with Tessa, but I think we can minimize our time with Dean running around the hospital trying to figure things out. Okay, that's one thing that we didn't talk about, but I absolutely agree with you, Drew. Like, um, this was a very Kripke episode in the sense that, like, there was a lot of movement that I felt was not necessary. We moved around a lot in the hospital, which, by the way, for some reason, Dean was, like, in the obstetrics aisle, like, wing. I don't know. I just, I don't understand but it's true. There was so much moving around. I, was, I I agree with you. It would have been nice to have a little less and to have a little more focus on the relationships instead. Yeah. Like as much as this, I feel is a Dean episode. Like I really, I think it goes as saying this is a Dean episode, but I think that relationship between John and Sam and just the way that it was handled suffered because we put, we want, they needed to fill more time of Dean doing things as a spirit, which also kind of worked to its benefit a little bit in the sense that it made it feel like a classic monster of the week episode when in the end it kind of wasn't as much as i am getting rid of it i do want to take a moment and defend it and say i really think had they been able to get sam and john done in the same time frame as better in the way that i wanted i am really content with the way the episode was written around dean and being a ghost or a spirit in the sense of i legitimately like i i record myself and i watch these for you know just for fun reaction and note-taking, and I said out loud, oh, this isn't going to be a classic Monster of the Week episode. And then I corrected myself, saying, oh, clearly it is. He's hunting something. And then at the end of the episode, I realized, like, oh, it wasn't. That was literally a fake-out. Like, kudos, it was a good fake-out. But (laughs) as fun as it was and as well as I thought it was executed, I think we could have ditched it, condensed our time with Tessa into more of a having Dean... Even if it was the same realization of seeing it in the book, of figuring out, oh, this other spirit that's been talking to me isn't a spirit, but it is a Grim Reaper, versus the, her and I are hunting this thing together, and I'm not going to let it take her because it's a Reaper, and oh no, it was you. It was like one twist too many that wasn't needed, and that time could have gone towards Sam and John. It's interesting because my deal is very similar and yet very different. (laughs) Oh, please, do indulge. Because... I also would give up because truly the only information we really needed from Tessa was what happens when people don't follow the Reaper into wherever she wanted to take him, right? Like that Mm -hmm. was really the only information we needed from her. And that I feel could have happened like fairly quickly, even though I like, again, I understand that the goal was to build a relationship between the two, which is nice, but especially considering that Dean doesn't even remember this when he wakes up. So like we've invested all of this time, right? So we've invested all of this time into the relationship between Dean and Tessa, and we have quite literally nothing to show for it at the end. Anyway, I definitely have problems with that. And in that optic, I would have liked to cut down on that. So I agree with you on that. So let's 
cut down on that. On the other hand, what I would have liked to see more of, actually, I would have liked to see Dean be able to respond to his dad when he apologizes. Through the seasons, and we've already started to see this, we can see that Dean has a lot of trouble, like, responding when emotional things happen, especially when he receives emotional information. So in this case, like his dad was offering an apology and Dean just doesn't really know what to respond. He goes like, why are you saying this? Like what's going on? When clearly earlier, he was so angry at him for not trying to save him. And again, I understand that he doesn't remember this, but the feelings are there. The feelings are still there, right? Like those feelings of anger and, and betrayal to a certain degree, like he feels them. And so when John actually validates, you know, Dean's perception of things, Dean's not able to respond. And I wish that he had been, he had tried to at least just say like, well, okay. Like even just acknowledging it, because he doesn't even acknowledge it. He's like, why are you saying this? Why all of a sudden? What's going on? He questions, but he doesn't even acknowledge. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's one thing that I really wish that Dean had been able to flex and practice. It's to how to receive emotional information from people. Yeah, that scene, it felt really, it felt rushed. Yes, I guess I, I get the stakes and the pacing and the big reveal at the end with the coffee cup and Sam, and, but it felt rushed. And, and for what? For Tessa time? Ugh, I don't know. It's just, it, I find it super frustrating. Yeah, no, and again, like, I liked Tessa, but you're right, it wasn't worth the trade-off. And the worst part is, like, we do find out more about Tessa later on, but really, like, this is not something that Dean really remembers, so I don't know. Yeah, I, I, it's interesting when we fall kind of onto the same same thing. It just goes to show that we, that despite our different views of the show and how we may interpret things differently, we do agree on the big point, which is, I think, why this works so well for us. Yeah, that's true. And we can both see when certain people in the hot seat of their own show can take things away from where they should be. Mm-hmm. You've been listening to Carrying Wayward, a supernatural podcast produced by Rochelle Castellano, hosted by Drew Shulman and myself, Marie Vigourou. Help us keep the conversation going. You can send us a voice recording at carryingwayward at gmail.com and you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok and YouTube using at carryingwayward. Subscribe on Spotify or Apple Podcasts for weekly content, including special episodes. And don't forget to come and rate us on Apple Podcasts, please. And we'll see you next week. Carry on our wayward friends. I think I more wanted more. Sorry? <laughs> more a helicopter? <laughs> I wanted two helicopters. <laughs> there was not enough helicopters in this episode. Like, there was only like one. Extra, I like, was not hours. happy about that. <laughs> no. no all of them should have their own helicopters. What am okay. I paying healthcare taxes for? <laughs> <laughs>